The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to a Saturday edition of Coffeehouse Shots. I'm Kate Andrews and I'm joined by economist Tyler Cowan, professor at George Mason University, chairman of the Mercatus Center, and co-author of the very popular economics blog, Marginal Revolution. Tyler, you and I are meeting up in Cambridge. We are at Civic Futures Great Stagnation Conference. You are giving the keynote address and the conference and that address are named after a book that you wrote not so recently, over a decade ago, called The Great Stagnation, How America Ate All the Low-Hanging Fruit of Modern History, Got Sick, and Will Eventually Feel Better. Tyler, what you were writing about in 2011 has become a real focal point and for many people an existential crisis about how advanced economies are going to deal with the fact that they're slowing down, that they're stagnating, that they're not seeing the economic growth that they once did. Tell our listeners a little bit about what you are telling the conference, what your thesis is, and how we get out of the great stagnation. In Britain in particular, there has not been much real wage growth or productivity growth since at least 2008. That's a long time for an economy to be stagnant. So however much stagnation is in the Western world as a whole, it seems to be especially bad here. And it's the number one policy problem. If people do not see their living standards going up, at least some of the people, there will be political discontent, other bad decisions will be made, you will stop maintaining your capital structure and let things like your healthcare system, your water utilities run down in quality. And that's what we're seeing. And I think we're all together at this conference hosted by Civic Future to figure out what to do. Well, let's get into some of those details in the UK. I mean, what, why is it that the UK is becoming this great outlier when it comes to GDP per capita, when it comes to its ability to, to invest, to build itself up? Some obvious things jump out to me, you know, a, a very rigid planning system that nobody is politically willing to touch. It can't build anything in the UK. There are lots of productivity issues. But from your perspective, coming over from the States, what do you see as, as the greatest pitfalls and the greatest challenges? There are many factors, and many of them I don't understand or possibly even know about. But the difficulty of building in South England is probably factor number one. And Cambridge in particular, where we are, could be a much more important powerhouse of commerce, of science, of discovery. But just a shortage of lab space or industrial park space, it's very difficult to make progress down here. So that would be the first area I would look. Uh, the second issue is human capital issues in northern England, which I don't feel I have a solution to. But for whatever reasons, it seems to be worse in the UK than, say, the Netherlands or Germany or some very broadly comparable countries, historically speaking. My sense is Brexit did knock back GDP by two or three percentage points, and it came at a bad time. Uh, that's not a permanent reason to stagnate, but you can add it to the pile. And then just some bad luck. And I think also a lot of the British innovations have in fact been impressive, but you don't always capture the value from them. So if you think of that steroid that was used to help people who had COVID, dexamethasone, it's been wonderful. The whole world has saved thousands of lives by using it, but it's not under IP protection. You all had the data, you made the discovery, you earned basically zero from it. 
So Britain needs to think of ways to internalize gains from the innovations it already has, rather than just giving them away to the rest of the world. Mm. You mentioned Brexit there, and this is a real point of contention, because given the fact that the UK formally left the European Union about eight, ten weeks before it was in its first lockdown from COVID-19, it's been very difficult to separate the economic impact of Brexit from the pandemic. Of course, Brexiteers want to say there has been no meaningful hit here. This is all lockdowns and COVID. Remainers want to say, well, Brexit is wholly responsible. As you point out, the truth is almost certainly going to be somewhere in between. But what do you think perhaps that the broader implications of Brexit are for getting the UK back on track? On the one hand, it has more freedom, more choice about what it's going to do. On the other, some of the reasons that the UK left, for example, immigration was at the top of people's list, have meant that the UK has cut off virtually all paths for low-skilled migrants to come to the UK unless you're on the shortages list. The UK has now over 1 million vacancies, which employers simply can't fill. This is causing a tight labor market. It's certainly fueling inflation. It feels like a, a real mixed bag and, and one that the UK hasn't really had the opportunity to explore because so much of the focus has been obviously, on the pandemic and the recovery from it. Well, I would leave it as an open question whether Brexit was good or bad. But the case for Brexit is that once you leave the EU, first, you get rid of all of its laws, which the UK has not done. And second, that in new areas, such as artificial intelligence, you take a very different course. And what I see so far is top leadership that has pretty decent position on artificial intelligence, but a bureaucracy that wants to regulate it at least as tightly as what the EU is doing, so none of the gains or potential gains have been reaped yet. And I don't feel this commitment to ideas of liberty and deregulation actually being seen through. So if Brexit is going to work out, that's the path along which it will work out. And so far, we're still waiting. And the pandemic obviously has been a problem for everyone. But also, emergencies are a time when you can make radical decisions and get away with it. And the UK hasn't done that in the area of, re of regulation or free to build. So that's a squandered opportunity more than an excuse. You know, that was the time to do other maybe politically weird things and you could have gotten away with them. There was talk of so many things changing and almost changing and then somebody would push back. There was talk about getting rid of the triple lock on pensions in the UK, which sees uh, the state pension rise by inflation, by average wages or by 2%, whichever is highest. Uh, and there was talk that, you know, young people just locked down for so long. Maybe this was the opportunity to make some changes there, but in the end, there were no meaningful changes made. We also have a real issue now in the UK of 5.3 million people on some kind of out-of-work benefit. It is increasingly difficult to see how the UK is going to get back on track and how it's going to meaningfully grow its economy when you have so many people out of work. I don't have the fixes to a lot of those problems. Uh, my fundamental intuition is the key problem is a human capital problem. So there's a lot of economies that have benefit schemes or out-of-work schemes that are too generous. It's fine to criticize those, but you still have to ask, why is so much of your population being trapped into that corner? And that's going to intersect with human capital issues, with mental health issues, depression, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. And again, I don't know why parts of Britain have done worse in those areas, but that's one of the first places I would look for remedies. It's interesting, if you look at the United States, people of British Isles extraction actually also have not done that well lately. If you look, say, at Filipino Americans, Philippines is not a rich country. They don't have some reputation of 
being the richest people every place they go, but per capita income of Filipino Americans in my country is much higher than, say, British Isles origin white Americans. So something's gone wrong. That's so interesting. I wanted to ask you a bit about the States. You're over in the UK for a little while. We're very happy to have you. But back in America, look, this is it's not to sing the praises of the US economy by any means, but comparatively, things do seem to be going better. There's more robust economic growth. In terms of inflation, we just found out this week, the headline inflation rate is down to 3% on the year in June. In the UK, it's still at a staggering 8.7% on the year to May. What is the US doing right? Or is this a matter of luck in particular circumstances that the UK, and more broadly speaking, Europe simply can't emulate? I was surprised that the inflation report came in as favorably as it did. One thing going for us is we more or less control our own energy supply. Another thing going for us that you could really cannot mimic, we have 50 different states. So if you want to build something, we have plenty of bad regulations that maybe you can't build it where it ought to go. But I'm quite sure you'll find a number of those 50 states who will let you put it somewhere. So it gets built. And again, there's a loss of value. Maybe it should have gone in Oakland, California. It had to end up in Tennessee. But it also has the advantage over time of spreading out the wealth across the nation. And it's precisely the problem here that you know, South England is doing pretty well, not rates of growth, but the level. And the rest of England lags behind. And it's as if London is intrinsically oversized because it grew to the size of the capital of the global empire. But now it's just a country. And part of it is doing really well. And the other parts have brain drain and lose talent to the South. And that's just very hard to fix. Uh, I'm not sure what you should do. You mentioned uh, the 50 states and the competition and the experience experiments we can see within them. If Britain were to join the U.S. as the 51st state, it would be the poorest. It would be poor in the Mississippi. That's correct. Uh, and I think that that kind of shocks people when they hear that. That's, that's not the view that they have of, of the U.K. It's certainly not the view they have of states like Mississippi. But it puts into perspective just how poorly it is going here. I was speaking to a, a major company in London a few nights ago. And neither my audience was people earning in the top 1%, whether in my country or yours, they'd be in the top 1%. And one of them asked me, so, well, I'm considering moving to the U.S., but I'm afraid to go because the healthcare system is so bad. Now, if that were a poor person, that might be an entirely legitimate concern. For someone in the top 1%, it's a kind of delusion. And uh, I think there's just a, a lot of waking up that has to be done here. And the whole, you know, the arrangements with Scotland, Northern Ireland, I mean, they're not for me to judge, but just from the outside, it feels like it's not quite working smoothly. There's a lot of devolution without quite responsibility or accountability. There's a lot of free riding going on. I don't know. It feels to me like bad luck. A number of negative developments came together at the same time. Mm. You spoke on the panel for the Growth Commission's launch earlier this week which has been convened by former Prime Minister Liz Truss. The commission is, is keen to say she's not actively involved, but she she did bring the group together of economists from all around the world who are going to be focused on new economic modeling, which I think in the UK, for example, they hope will provide an alternative to the Office for Budget Responsibility. They want more dynamic modeling. They want to look at the real cost of tax and regulation, the real benefits of supply-side reform. And on that panel, you have put a nice line, Tyler. You said, it is the fate of Britain that we are talking about. And you were referring to economic growth. You speak about it almost in ethical, moral terms, certainly not as numbers on a spreadsheet. Well, it is the future of any nation. So if you look, say, at Europe, 
Poland in 1990 basically had close to nothing. And now it's within 10 years, maybe less, of overtaking England or the United Kingdom in terms of per capita income. And that's amazing. They did that because they have steadily grown most years at about 4%, and that compounds over time. And it's the difference between having a lot of opportunity, chance to be creative, choose your profession, have a comfortable lifestyle, the best health care for your children, or having a struggle. And that's what's at stake for every country. And it's a lot of small decisions that add up. And if you stop thinking they're all really important, it will come back to bite you. Uh, last year, you wrote about how you admire some of the pro-growth policies that were coming out of the very short-lived Liz Trust administration. And you sat on the panel for the Growth Commission this week, looking back on how things have panned out over the last eight months. What do you think went so wrong for the Trust administration? And do you think any of the, the pro-growth lessons have been learned? Or do you think the UK has just completely shoved that to the side and and pursue something far more technocratic. When it comes to both the elites and public opinion, I don't see the progress here. There's plenty of people I speak to where I think they're on the right track, but in terms of the overall tenor of the country, there's a sense that experiment failed. Uh, the way the media handled that experiment and the way that experiment handled the media did not go well on either side, and it was a lost opportunity and I think it's been very harmful to Britain because, as you know, if you look at you know the interest rates that went up during the trust weeks was viewed as a sign of disaster. Well, obviously, trust was gone. We're back to having interest rates just as high, actually somewhat higher. And people are, they are waking up and realizing like the problem wasn't this one politician. The problem is us. That's a nice realization. But the positive program to do something seems to me far away and these, these other big issues like recapitalizing uh, the National Health Service, people still think they can get something for free and not have to pay very much for it. And that's clearly not going to be true. Again, I don't know how to fix it, but I think people are in for a rude awakening here. You mentioned um, some Brits' views of the, of, the US, of the U.S. health system before. I, I've been in this country for over a decade. I've never argued for the U.S. health system because I think it's it really falls short in offering universal access, which virtually every other developed country in the world does, apart from the United States. However, there is a desperate desire here in the UK to intentionally ignore the rest of the world. Everyone wants to talk as if it's the NHS versus the USA, and uh, you are lucky to arrive the week after the NHS's 75th birthday, Tyler, because there were actual prayers being sent up in Westminster Abbey by our politicians singing the praises of the NHS. And, you know, it, it is very frustrating because there are lots of systems that have great market mechanisms that have real competition that still protect everybody as you want to do in a developed society. And, and the National Health Service is, is truly an area that a lot of, well, a lot of the politicians anyway can't come to terms with. What's interesting is as these wait lists in the UK are going up, they've reached 7.5 million this week on NHS England you can start to feel a slight shift in, in the patients who have to deal with this and the deep frustration that goes along with that. These may not be popular remarks for a British audience, but I do think the U.S. system is quite underrated. So we fail to cover about 7% of our population. In a nation of 330 million people, I'm not sure you can get much higher. Those are virtually all individuals who have the option of buying health insurance. Indeed, the law may force them to buy health insurance. 
and they simply flaunt the law, and we don't send them to jail. I don't want to send them to jail. That would be terrible. But there's health insurance there for them, and they don't want to do it. So I think we're closer to universal coverage than many people realize. But the key question is, which healthcare systems are producing innovation? That, in fact, would include the British system, or at least some parts of it. But it definitely, America is the number one healthcare innovator by far in pharmaceuticals or various remedies, scientific advances. And that's the most important thing you want from your healthcare system, because without that, the price of everything is infinity. No matter what rhetoric you apply to, oh, who has coverage for what? I suppose one of the difficulties, though, is that Medicaid, which in theory is supposed to cover people who couldn't otherwise access healthcare, um, is such a rotten system. In practice, it doesn't. And I think that the NHS and the U.S. system have uncomfortable overlaps that a lot of people in the U.K. don't want to admit to which is actually there are postcode lotteries. It isn't an equal system. There are elements of it that are deeply unfair. And unless you actually care about those people and want to address that, you're really just protecting a system. You're not really protecting the patients. Sure. And I think in the U.S. and some parts of the U.K., the actual health problem is one of public health and people's habits and not the kind of coverage they get or don't get. If you look at, say, a Japanese-American woman who lives in New Jersey, her life expectancy is over 90. That's about the highest in the world. And uh, the system can be much better in, in any place if you take good care of yourself. When you were speaking on the growth question panel, you were asked what you thought the main drivers of growth would be in the future. And you listed three things, artificial intelligence, biomedical science, and green energy. So I'm wondering if you could dive into that a bit more for our listeners. Why did you hone in on those three areas? And what are you optimistic about? In each of those three areas, we've seen radical change. So if you take green energy, prices for wind and solar on a compounding basis have been falling by 10 or 15% a year. And in many parts of the world, not all, they are competitive energy sources. Wind in particular, you're a country with a lot of wind. I know there's a lot of restrictions on generating and transmitting wind power, but you could do it. Just need to have the will to do it. A nuclear power... Modular reactors, fusion, are highly promising developments. Fission, I think, was already safe but expensive, but nuclear will be much more feasible, I think, in the near future. Again, there will be countries that do it and countries that don't. There's some promising talk here, but we don't yet know which category you'll fall into. If you look at artificial intelligence, some of the key innovations came from UK companies. Uh, it remains to be seen how much this country will benefit from those. But for the first time, this is one of the most dramatic breakthroughs in human history. We have created a fairly general form of intelligence. We can pass a bar exam, a medical exam, or in a lot of university classes, get an A minus. Not perfect, not as good as the best human geniuses, but it's getting better and it's extremely impressive. So there'll be countries that do a lot with that and countries that don't. And again, it will be up to each place to choose. And then finally, if you look at biomedicine, your country and mine, both of ours, and Germany also, we got COVID vaccines in less than a year when it was thought it was probably a five to 10 year project. That's a kind of miracle. There now seem to be vaccines that work against malaria. There's progress against dengue, against sickle cell anemia. Innovations coming out of CRISPR may be promising. There's a good chance that mRNA vaccines will address HIV AIDS and some forms of cancer within the next 10 years. So we're in this golden age of blossoming innovation. Again, UK is quite strong in pharma, and I'm optimistic that that will be one of the things 
that pulls Britain out of its malaise. But again, one has to see it through and make sure it actually happens. Back to the theme of the conference, the great stagnation. Are you more optimistic now than you were back in 2011 when you wrote a book on that very theme? Are you dismayed that not enough progress has been made in more than a decade? And what advice are you going to be giving to the audience tonight? Well, in 2011, I said that I think we will get out of the great stagnation within 20 years. But I didn't know when, and of course, I wasn't certain about that. So I think we're now climbing out of it. But I would put it this way, like the highest productivity gains in a lot of the West came in the 1920s and 1930s, where all the goods just spilled onto the table and modern consumer society was built. I think we're more in something analogous to the 1870s. We're putting together the pieces of the new world, but we're not getting the goodies yet. So we still have a ways to go. But I think you can finally say we have major innovations, some of which, you know, I've been injected with mRNA vaccines. It might have saved my life. It's not a fantasy. It's a reality. And uh, the end of it is here. Could take 20, 30 years to have like energy, information, communications come together so that we really truly transform the world into a much better place. Tyler, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you.